0: Well good evening everyone and welcome to the Friday seminar lecture for seventh week of this term. Uh, my name, those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the fellows here at the Middle East Centre. I'm even more pleased to invite, uh, delighted to introduce our speaker for this evening, Hugh Robert. Hugh is the Edward Keller Professor of North African and Middle Eastern History at Tufts University in the States. Anybody who's really studied or read anything to do with Algeria will know Hugh's work extremely well since he is one of the most prominent experts and commentators on modern Algerian history and politics um, in English. A graduate I'm pleased to say, from here in Oxford at Trinity College he conducted his doctoral research in Kabylia in Algeria in the 1970s. This formed the basis of a series of of seminal articles uh, on both Kabilia and increasingly Algeria more broadly throughout the 1980s that were crucial in explaining developments in a country which had really begun to drift off the radar of most uh, researchers and commentators. And therefore, when Algeria moved in the late 1980s back into international attention, Through the the riots of October 1988, uh, the creation of a multi-party political system and elections, what Algerians like to call you their Arab Spring... happened 20-odd years before it happened in the rest of the rest of the world. Hugh, at that point, was one of the few commentators not really caught unawares and bewildered by the dramatic turn of events that trapped most commentators in an explanatory paradigms that were clearly out of date. There was a dramatic turn of events. I myself began studying Algeria in 1991. And I found Hughes' articles and analysis among the very few things that really made us seem to make sense of what was happening in Algeria as it moved from crisis into conflict through the cancellation and the abandonment of the elections uh, in 1992. His incisive commentary continued throughout the rest of the troubled 1990s and led him to becoming the director of the International Crisis Group's North Africa project between 2002 uh, and 2007, producing key reports on Algeria and the wider region. His analysis during this period is brought together in the book, The Battlefield, Algeria 1988-2002, to 2002, Studies in a, in a Broken Polity, really looking at this whole period and bringing it together, and I thoroughly recommend it. More recently, he has returned to his topic of his original defil thesis in publishing Berber Government, The Cabal Politics in Pre-Colonial Algeria. And this evening we are very fortunate to have him speak on the subject of contemporary Algerian politics under the intriguing title of Are Algerian Politics Exhausted? And Hugh has promised me he won't give a one-word answer and then sit down to that. <laughs> but very pleased to introduce you to our speaker this evening, Hugh Rob.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be uh, back in Oxford and at St. Antony's in particular. And I'm most grateful for that very flattering introduction, which I will now struggle to live up to. Uh, I have put together a PowerPoint... Okay, and I hope I know how to manipulate this. This is the ambitious, optimistic agenda I've set for uh, this evening, starting with um, a matter that is a major preoccupation at any rate of conversations in Algiers and also other parts of the country, uh, the question of the presidency. I'll explain uh, why there is a big question now over the presidency of Algeria to do with the illness of President uh, Bouteflika, but the apparent intention of Bouteflika to remain in office until God decrees otherwise. The issue that is being, in effect, uh, ignored, although it was raised by Bouteflika himself, the end of historical legitimacy in Algeria, uh, what that means, uh, what, what Algerians mean by the end of historical legitimacy, and what it implies for Algerian political development from here on. I will be talking about the political parties and this, I think, is ground that those of you who've been reading Michael's work will know very well. He and I, I think, are very, share very much the same rather disenchanted view of the political parties in Algeria. I'll say something in more, more particular about what's been going on in Kabilia. So, and then try to conceive, to address the question of what, how do we conceive, what concepts do we need to make sense uh, of what I am describing And then I'm going to introduce a kind of joker element in the analysis, which is um, a thesis of mine that actually I first developed many years ago, but have in a sense been keeping to myself the importance of a a rather occulted, discreet, that's a, a polite word, you could say secret, element in the history of the Algerian nationalist movement that I think has been largely overlooked, Uh, And why I think this is something that we ought to know about and add to the mix of factors when contemplating the question I've raised tonight. The answer to which, the provisional answer to which, since Eamon Girin over there has been pressing me for one, is it looks like it. All right? But uh, things look like uh, what they look like in Algeria, and that can be mystifying and misleading. So that's the agenda. Can I move on to something else? Okay, there, I'm going to start with the present. I, I, I tend to think that uh, people like to know where things have got to before um, discussing how they got there. Um, here's President Bouteflika looking in relatively good shape when he became president in 1999. And subsequently, uh, he has uh, declined, as uh, all of us do, of course, following a stroke in uh, the early summer of 2013, which uh, hospitalised him in France for 81 days, a rather spectacular length of time to spend away from the country in a French hospital. And a consequence of this is the extent to which he has come to depend in running the presidency on his younger brother, the man on the left, Said Bouteflika, who is widely seen actually as the person who is effectively running the presidency, a function for which of course he has absolutely no mandate whatever. It's um, a, if you like, an informal and therefore, for some people, illicit delegation of authority from the elder brother to the younger. Following the uh, stroke in 2013, Butaflika nonetheless insisted on running for yet another term in office. And here he is uh, in his wheelchair, which uh, to which he is now confined, just about managing to vote for himself in 2014. So we have an issue to do with the... Capacity of President Budaflika, I've come to median too soon, to continue in office. He's already been in office longer than any other president of independent Algeria. Uh, the previous records were held by Boumedien, 13 years, and President Shadley, just about 13 years. It's now, of course, over 18 years, uh, 1999, 2017, and he's in, on his fourth term. This is problematic from various points of view in any case, even if he wasn't. Uh, wheelchair bound uh, given that the constitution under which he became president for the first time in 1996 specified term limits two terms and no more. In order to have a third term they had to simply revise the constitution. It was a very blatant uh, fixing of the constitution which went down badly with some elements of the political class while being supported by others. Uh, And then for him to have a fourth term in 2014 uh, was really the last straw for an important elements of the Algerian oligarchy but he got his way and he got his way in part because he managed to win a power struggle with this man uh, the head of the intelligence empire known as the DRS the Department of Intelligence and Security which is a department I should say was a department of the defense ministry uh, and um, Mohamed Medienne ran the DRS from 1990 uh, and therefore he also had beaten all records of longevity in a senior position. And on his return from Paris in uh, July 2013, Budaflicker engages in a campaign assaulting Medienne's intelligence empire. He doesn't do this alone. He would never have been able to do this if he hadn't had the support of the head of the regular army. Uh, this man, Je- Lieutenant General, that's the highest rank in the Algerian army, uh, Ahmed Gaid Salah, Chief of Staff of the ANP, that's the, the People's National Army, backing Bouteflika. Now, uh, that's how it was presented, Gaid Salah backing Bouteflika. One could look at it from the other angle, that it was Bouteflika happily going along with Gaid Salah, uh, because Gaid Salah also had, arguably, uh, an interest of his own in seeing off Medienne. The result... of of this power struggle that began, that got underway in earnest in July 2013 was the restructuring of the intelligence services and a kind of death of a thousand cuts for Medien. Medellin was not himself forced into retirement until the end of the process. He stayed head of the DRS till 2015 uh, but by then most of his empire had been taken away from him and he uh, was a rather diminished figure by the time he was according to the Presidency, allowed to retire, according to the Ministry of Defense, forced to retire. The terms in which the announcement was made on the Presidential website were different from that of the Defence, uh, Ministry of Defense. Admi à la retraite, or mi à la retraite. And clearly that expressed a degree of needle between the regular army and the in- military intelligence. Uh, a, a kind of thing that, of course, one finds in many other countries, uh, a degree of friction between military intelligence services and regular soldiers. So the point here is that the Buddha Flieger, his success in getting a fourth term, uh, was arguably in some degree premised on this uh, successful alliance with the regular army against the intelligence services. Uh, you can see here um, a brief uh, timeline about the changing alliances behind the scenes within the oligarchy permitting Butaflika to have his second, third and fourth uh, terms in office. We now are in a situation that is really rather bizarre because uh, in 2016 there was yet another constitutional revision which restored term limits and yet uh, Butaflika, in other words having had four terms, he he's then said, OK, from now on, everyone else can only have two terms. Uh, and yet, there is now in Algeria very uh, sus- sustained talk of him having a fifth term. The constitutionality of, uh, pre- of um, Budaflika's position is in question for that reason, but also for other reasons, above all the fact that he is visibly, physically uh, incapacitated. When uh, he was uh, running... For his fourth term, he did not campaign at any point. He did not make any campaign speeches. The campaigning was done for him, uh, notably by the Prime Minister. His predecessor, President <coughs> Liamin Zerowal, who was president from 1994 to 1999... Publicly uh, st- made a, a statement that many people took very seriously. That the presidency is, a, is an office with v- major responsibilities. The incumbent <laughs> needs to be physically fit. <laughs> you cannot carry the burden on your shoulders if you're not in good shape. And most pe- nobody contradicted that. The point is that, in addition, Budaflika's absence, perceived absence from. Office uh, over uh, uh, on a number of occasions for over 45 days itself is uh, argued to trigger a process uh, leading to uh, the uh, conclusion that the presidency is vacant. A number of uh, Algerian personalities have argued that there is uh, a vacant president, vacances du pouvoir. Uh, and that therefore the constitutional provisions for uh, finding a successor should kick in none of this is happening and one of the reasons is that the procedure that lay down in the constitution for uh, dealing with this problem the convening of a meeting of the constitutional council that is authorised to declare vacances du pouvoir the constitutional council has not met and appears to be determined not to meet, it is refusing to be seized of the matter. Uh, and uh, the conventional view in Algiers is this is in part connected with the fact that uh, four of its members are Bouteflika appointees, including its CHEM, uh, former Foreign Minister Murad Medelsi. So, uh, despite, in other words, the, contra- the considerable public controversy over the constitutionality of Bouteflika's position, it appears to be the intention of the presidency. Uh, widely perceived to be effectively managed by Sidewood Fleeca, the younger brother, to carry on regardless and to move towards a fifth term in 1919. And the question, or one of many questions that arises then is well, what will happen if God takes the elder brother back in the meantime? And some people are beginning to take seriously the idea of the Cuban scenario, where the younger brother, Raul Castro, succeeds Fidel, Side succeeds Abdelaziz and here I have to say that I went out on a limb in 2014 saying this could not happen and I'm now beginning to think, well, maybe it can happen and that fits into uh, my hypothesis it's a working hypothesis, I'm not dogmatic about it that maybe Algerian politics are coming to an end uh, my argument that there could not be a Cuban succession when I was put on the spot by an Algerian journalist in Montreal in 2014 was this would be a most un-Algerian thing to happen uh, Algeria, for all its limitations, is not a monarchy. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a rather unappealing republic, but uh, Algeria's traditions would not allow a brother to succeed. Uh, and now I'm beginning to think that anything can happen, because I'm beginning to think that uh, major features of Algerian politics, as I have known and been fascinated by it for the last 45 years, have actually begun to disappear. Let me just move on now. Okay, so... Uh, we have the controversy we have a number of people making an issue of it, Ali Yahya this uh, well known human rights lawyer being particularly vocal as one can expect Liamin Zerawal making an issue as uh, here he is on the left of the picture when he was president um, uh, talking about the burden of office In, two years ago uh, a striking development was led by the war heroine and uh, figure of the Battle of Algiers Zohra Drif uh, who was a friend of Bouteflika and made a public statement about the fact that she had tried to contact her friend, the president, and been unable to do so, and therefore raised the question, who is running the presidency? And she was associated with others, with major figures. Uh, here are some of them. The woman on her right in this picture is uh, Louisa Hanoun, the, the first leader, woman leader of a political party in the Arab world, the leader of the Workers' Party and a well-known uh, former uh, war hero Lacta Boraga on the on the right of the picture forming the group of 19 making an issue of who's running the presidency and that's connected uh, for, in their minds with the fact that the uh, law of finance the budget for in 2015 contained provisions that they regarded were uh, clearly and unequivocally against the Algerian national interest which if Abdelaziz Bouteflika were running things, would not have been in that budget. Dispositions that pleased the French but were regarded as sellouts by these uh, veteran nationalists. So we have these two views. There is a constitutional crisis, and we have the second view. Actually, there isn't one. Circulez, il n'y a rien à voir, as they say in France. Keep moving, there's nothing to see. And a key element here beyond the Constitutional Council's uh, refusal to do its job is the position of the army. Because quite a number of personalities making an issue of this have basically been turning to the army and uh, suggesting that the army should make a move, even make a coup. They've um, tended in in the last year or so to be careful not to say make a coup, but to, well, something needs to be done, damning. Uh, And what's striking about this is really two things. First, the the suggestions, um, something needs to be done, remain entirely vague. No one at any point making declarations of this kind has made a specific proposition. It's been very vague. And the other aspect of it is the response of Gaid Sala to this public pressure, woodeningly insisting the army is a republican army. All these calls on us to act are calls on us to, to uh, violate the constitution. There is no question of, of us doing that. We are a republican army, full stop. And what I find interesting about that is uh, first of all, uh, of course, one would like to believe that the Algerian army is now a Republican army. Uh, one hopes so. But actually, that is, in my view, irrelevant for a reason that I'm struck no one in Algeria has pointed out. Salah uh, is chief of staff of the army. As such, it's appropriate for him to say, the army of which I am chief of staff will not do anything to violate the Constitution. However, he is also a member of the government. He is vice minister of defence. Many people, when he was appointed... Uh, to that position c- suggested it was actually wrong for him to combine both functions but that bruhaha faded uh, over a year ago. He's a member of the government. As such, there's nothing unconstitutional about him expressing an opinion to his colleagues in the government along the lines, look chaps, there's a bit of a hullabaloo about the constitutionality of the position this has gone on for over a, uh, over a year, in fact uh, several years, it's unhealthy something should be done about it the Council, the Constitutional Council, should do its job. That would not be an anti-constitutional move for a member of the government. He's not made it, and he's been, interestingly, under no pressure to make it. I find it very striking that none of the people calling for the army to do something uh, and for the Constitutional Council to do its job, none of them have figured out that uh, a more focused way of putting pressure on Salah would be to say, uh, as a minister... Uh, as a member of the government, uh, you have the, uh, the right within the Constitution and arguably the duty to an express an opinion. The point being, he's not been, uh, in a sense, effectively put on the spot over this. And I think that that is expressive of a weakness in the political wing of the Algerian, on the civilian political wing of the Algerian oligarchy. Here are three, three more figures who have recently uh, been speaking up on this issue calling for something to be done while signally failing to be precise about what they think ought to be done and these are all major figures Ali Yahya in the middle once again uh, but a former foreign minister Talib Ibrahimi uh, who was a minister for many years and a former distinguished general commander of the navy secretary general of the ministry of defence on the right Rashid Ben uh, these are um, distinguished figures and yet their discourse is vague I find this striking. It's as if they're more concerned to dissociate themselves from what is happening than to find a way through the wood to a resolution of a constitutional difficulty. Now, one point here that if we go back to the question of the army's attitude, or rather the army's attitude as uh, defined by Gaetzala, a reluctance perhaps to undermine Budaflika... Uh, is uh, the fact that he is popular. And this may come as a surprise. In uh, Britain, there is a tendency, I think, to think that uh, dictators in Arab countries are, are obviously unpopular. Uh, well, Bouteflika isn't unpopular. Uh, he is actually credited by many, many Algerians with having done uh, several good things uh, to have uh, kept his promise in 1999 to put the fires out, as he put it, to end the violence. He also um, succeeded in the second mission that his military sponsors gave him which was to break the ice pack in which the Algerian ship of state was stuck internationally, in other words to bring Algeria back into the concert of nations, revive partnerships and so on, that was all done very effectively, he knew knew the game very well as a former foreign minister and the third thing was of course, thanks to him being lucky in terms of the oil and gas prices uh, channeling uh, Algeria's once again abundant uh, foreign revenues into all kinds of development projects that made a lot of people a lot better off. There has been a prodigious amount of new house building in Algeria. I, I was just recently in Algeria and I visited parts of Algiers I didn't know existed and they are huge, really rather good quality. Uh, Housing being built on an enormous scale and not only in in and around Algiers but around other places I was also in Kabilia and was um, astonished by the way various places I long had uh, long knew uh, well they just completely changed uh, their appearance because of the sprouting of massive new housing developments it's not only housing motorways crossing the country a good deal of infrastructural development uh, and so on so we have uh, this uh, substantial reasons for him to be popular and for, therefore, uh, the key figures in the regime, in the elite, to be wary of moving against him. There's also this other issue, and I, it's an issue I think that needs to be uh, emphasised. Uh, Bouteflika made this extraordinary remark in Satif in the middle of eastern Algeria in, uh, five years ago, uh, this is Algerian Arabic, um, it means uh, my generation, literally my generation, its garden has ripened or has matured. It's, it's a rather, a rather rather poetic, I rather like it. Uh, what he was meaning was that the revolutionary generation, the generation that has wielded power in virtue of its legitimacy, in virtue of its participation in leading roles in the wartime FLN and ALN, it has come to the end of its time. He is the last of the historic, uh, legitimate rulers of Algeria. Now, this, in my view, uh, uh, there's two very interesting things about this, in my view. First, that uh, nobody actually challenged him by pointing out, well, actually, there were some really quite prominent and distinguished uh, and reasonably well-known war veterans who were younger than him, and that, therefore, he doesn't have to be the last, he seems to be determined to be the last of that generation to serve as president. And in particular, Mulud Hamrush, who was the uh, uh, reforming prime minister who made uh, such waves in 89-91 in 90, as a reforming prime minister. He's still around, he's four years younger, and it looks as if Budafreak is determined to deny Hamrush the chance of being a, uh, uh, a successor in the presidency. There is also... Another reason for thinking that B- 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 Budaflika's uh, motives are, are, are partly selfish ones is the question of the Algiers Mosque, which is being built along the bay. It's already visible, it's not complete, but it is going to be the biggest mosque, in Nor- the highest mosque in North Africa, uh, so a bras d'honneur to Hassan II and his <laughs> son in Morocco, comes uh, so, and it seems to me and it's entirely plausible that Burufri is absolutely determined to inaugurate this mosque uh, and insisting on it and uh, whether or not he's also determined to die with his boots on in office he's not going to let anyone else inaugurate his mosque ok, the point is those are, that's uh, for what the Algerians call that petite histoire, those are sort of um, uh, I think real considerations but, but details, secondary, not, not particularly interesting for those of us trying to figure out the sort of, to put this in, in historical perspective. What interests me is the idea that um, the reasons why uh, the, the fleet team are getting away with this and uh, for quite a while and certainly um, still in 2014 when I suggested that the Cuban scenario could be forgotten was I was expecting the pendulum eventually to swing and by that I mean a, a pendulum of, of the factional conflict within the, the power structure in particular I was expecting the Easterners to make a comeback uh, Zeral was an Easterner Hamrush is an Easterner um, a former Prime Minister and briefly former Secretary General of the FLN uh, who's now p- created his own party Ali Ben Fleece is an Easterner and Budafrika is from the West and his team have, his, his regime has been dominated by Westerners it's been uh, in a way uh, the well the regime of the city of Clemson, uh, towns near Klemsen, near the Moroccan border, Nedroma in particular, um, a small compass of western Algeria uh, plus Oran, producing a really extraordinary high proportion uh, of the power holders under Budaflika. What's happened to all the Easterners? They, uh, I've been assuming that they had it in them, they would be making a comeback and were simply waiting for the, for the appropriate moment. And I'm now beginning to think that the pendulum is not going to swing in that way and that in other words, the logic underlying that way of thinking about the Algerian political game as a factional game is no longer um, apposite, that certain things have changed the premises of, of the pendulum, if you like, and of the, a number of the parameters uh, of the factional conflict as it could be observed and interpreted from the, uh, from the middle of the war through to uh, the, the end of the 1990s, no longer obtained. And that's something I want to explore, Um, plus the clearly cavalier attitude of the oligarchy to the constitution uh, is something that also needs to be uh, explored. Um, Wait a minute, am I going back? I'm going back, sorry. One of the premises, I think, of the... So if I just mark a pause, I'm basically suggesting that a number of, if you like, unwritten rules in Algerian politics have ceased to hold. It's the unwritten rules that have mattered. The written rule, the constitution, is just a piece of paper. It's not new for the Algerian oligarchy to treat this piece of paper with contempt. That in itself is not surprising. Uh, What's surprising for me at any rate is that long-standing unwritten rules seem no longer to obtain. And one of the reasons I would suggest, or one of the sets of reasons for this change, is the depoliticization of the army. Now... Uh, it's difficult, of course, to measure this. I'm not for one moment suggesting that there is total and absolute depoliticisation far from it. But it's striking fact that nearly all the senior officers of the army belonged now to the, uh, to the post-war generation. Gait Salah saw a bit of action in the war, towards the end of the war, did nothing particularly prominent. He was a junior figure, uh, but he can claim to have fought in it. But virtually all his colleagues in the high command can't make that claim now. Uh, that's an important premise. Gaetano himself. I don't like to be offensive, but I mean he lacks charisma, to put it mildly. Uh, his authority is not that of someone who has played uh, a leading military role. He was appointed chief of staff by Budaflika as a, to be a self-effacing chief of staff when that was what Budaflika required. He has, his authority is that of an administrator. Just before I left Algiers, uh, I saw on television a long excerpt from a speech he was giving to officers uh, in which he was reiterating the the whole thing about the army being a republican army uh, and constitutional and uh, well-behaved and so on and so forth. He was reading this in a laborious fashion. It was boring beyond words. You saw shots of the audience, all young officers sitting in a theatre much like this. How they stopped yawning and prevented themselves from yawning, I don't know. I mean, it was not inspiring, OK? It was la langue de bois. It was the, the wooden language. Uh, he is not a charismatic figure. My reading for what it's worth is that his power is bureaucratic power, full stop. But he's got he's got a grip on, on the officer corps for the time being. Third element of this point is that the length of time in which Medien ran the intelligence services meant that in a way, Medienne, uh sucked all the, the the role, the political role of the army into his own apparatus. That the DRS became, in a sense, a de facto monopolist of the politics of the army, both in policing the army internally, which was one of the reasons why the regular army officers bitterly resented it and couldn't wait to get rid of him, but also in defining the army's strategic choices in relation to the rest of the Algerian polity, and in particular, uh, defining choices as to who should be the next president. And Medellin was crucial uh, in the the decisions that made Bouteflika president for his first, second, and third terms. And now, the point is that with his eviction and the dismantling of his empire, elements of which, of course, still exist, but they've been restructured and um, redeployed, Uh, there's a case with the view that at any rate for the time being the army's collective capacity for politics has been weakened Uh, that it's not in a position to undertake any political initiatives of its own Uh, which in turn raises the question whether the army uh, high commanders who previously have functioned as the real to use Walter Badgett's terminology the efficient electoral college choosing the president before Uh, a spurious so-called election is is, um, engaged in to dignify uh, the choice of the Electoral College. It's arguable that the decision makers that we all relied on as part of our analyses, I'm sure Michael would agree with this, uh, les décideurs, maybe there aren't any décideurs any longer. Uh, Maybe these uh, senior military figures who were decision makers throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s aren't there any longer or no longer have the capacity to function in that way and that in in, in turn would contribute uh, an element of explanation for the army's apparent decision to be be happy with Budaflika staying in office no matter for how long, Uh, a fifth term, a sixth term, if God is in agreement with that. So we have that set of factors, the at least relative and at least temporary depoliticization of the army I think elements of this depoliticization are permanent. Other elements may be temporary. It's not a simple matter. But then we have, I think, a point that should be taken. The absence of serious pressure on the Algerian oligarchy to take its own constitution seriously. And here we have, there is a, a background premise of this, the fact that unlike Tunisia, Algeria had no constitutionalist tradition in the pre-colonial period, it was amputated from the Ottoman Empire in 1830. It didn't really; its elites really did not participate, even vicariously, in the uh, Tanzimat process in the way that Tunisia's elites did uh, and Egyptians' elites and so on. Uh, they were preoccupied with totally different matters, resisting the French conquest. There's no constitutionalist tradition in Algeria; it's, its political traditions are other and arguably not at all helpful from the point of view of trying to uh, conceive, let alone promote and engage in. Uh, significant political reform the other point here is uh, the political parties, I'm going to leave the details of the party scene to the Q&A but I would basically, I want to put a radical position here, Algeria doesn't have any political parties it has what it calls political parties and it is deluding itself uh, and there is a fundamental structural reason for this uh, which uh, is connected to the way in which the Algerian polity was, that was set up after independence was modelled more than anything else on the Egyptian example. Uh, and that is that uh, the revolution in both cases was a, a military matter and the military, uh, the regime that emerges from a military re- revolution sets up a façade party. The uh, Liberation Rally, subsequently the ASU in Egypt, subsequently the NDP. These are façade parties, not real parties. They're state apparatuses. Performing certain functions, but not unimportant functions, but It's a great mistake to to confuse these with genuine political parties. The party of the FLN set up in Algeria in 1962, very much the same animal. To his credit, the the late President Houari Boumediene publicly admitted this. He said that the the party is an empty shell in coquille, and that is the truth. So the point is that a regime that depends on state apparatuses, it fondly calls parties, uh, to function as uh, to perform legitimating functions. Also socialisation functions. Anyone who wants to take part in political life has to go through the mill of party membership and get socialised into the do's and don'ts uh, of the system. A regime that depends on such pseudo-parties cannot then, when liberalising, allow real parties to come into existence. And if we look carefully at what notionally opposition parties the regime has legalised... First they're not opposition parties They're dissident parties well, They engage in dissent rather than opposition Secondly uh, The most rigorous of them uh, uh, Their stock in trade is one or another Identity issue The Islamists Are, identity, uh, the, uh, are to do with identity And the cultural uh, uh, Implications of the Muslim identity and Cultural and of course Legal, judicial, moral uh, Implications of that The Berber parties are about the Berber identity None of these parties are ever alternatives to the existing government. And that is how matters are arranged. And uh, none of them, therefore, conform to Edmund Burke's definition of a political party, which, of course, I can assume you all know, uh, and I won't spend further time on. Um, but the point is, in my view, uh, you've got this pseudo-pluralism. Uh, and the key point about this is that, uh, for practical purposes, whether or not you agree with uh, these, uh, my way of conceiving it, the parties are licensed by the regime. They exist uh, by virtue of the regime's uh, decision and goodwill, uh, which can be revoked. They are congenitally incapable uh, of imagining, let alone promoting and campaigning and mobilizing people for political and constitutional reforms that transcend the status quo and have not, never begun to do this. The only partial exception to that is, in fact, the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front. The capital parties haven 't begun to do it. The Trotskyist workers party hasn 't begun to do it. The, all the legalismist parties today don 't try to do it, so they cannot be a source of pressure on the regime to respect its constitution, let alone uh, promote the political changes that would actually allow uh, the myth of constitutional rule to become a reality okay i 've got uh, probably about another eight minutes, so I will just say. That's a critique of the political parties, which, in fact, I made a long time ago. What I want to add to this as new is that now, actually, many of them seem to be exhausted. This is particularly clear of the Kabyal parties. The two main cabal parties being, uh, historically, uh, this man's party, the Hossinite Ahmed's uh, Socialist Forces Front, uh, the FFS, that has, uh, over the years, garnered so much uh, respect and goodwill from international audiences, which dates back to 1963, when it was launched as a rebellion against Ben Bella's government in Kabylia. Ahmed <coughs> finally died uh, in late uh, December 2015. Was buried in early January at an extraordinary ceremony in his native village in the mountains of Kabylia. Arguably, the FFS uh, cannot survive the death of its founder and and the man who led it for 50 years. And that's because uh, and. Uh, this is, of course, a matter of opinion, but my view of the FFS is that it was much more, in its actual logic of functioning, it, was, it resembled a tariqah uh, much more than a modern political party. It was a one-man band, it was a sheikh and his acolytes and adepts, uh, and it's not at all clear that the, it has a raison d'etre now. Uh, what is clear is it's lost most of its capacity to mobilize public opinion in Kabilia to look no further. The same is true of its alter ego, the rally for culture and democracy, set up by Saïd Saadi, um, a renegade, a defector from the FFS, um, and who led it uh, until he resigned the leadership in 2012, uh, now led by a younger man. all I was in Kabylia last week and everyone was saying to me the same thing. Uh, these parties no longer have much purchase on public opinion in Kabylia, let alone elsewhere. Uh, they're run now by essentially a, a post-charismatic ap- apparatchiks, uh, and uh, they're not going anywhere, and people aren't interested in what they have to offer, which is very little. Uh, and I can elaborate on that if people are interested. The movement that has been developing in, in Kabylia, benefiting from the reflux of interest in these parties, is the much more radical in certain respects uh, autonomy movement founded by this man, Farhat Meheni, in 2001, a defector from the RCD, who um, proposed um, that Kabyle alienation from the regime, disaffection should should uh, come to terms with reality. Trying to democratize the state has been a total waste of time and has got nowhere. Trying to interest Berbers in other parts of Algeria has been a waste of time and energy. They resent Kabyle hegemony. The Kabyles. Uh, uh, with their democratic traditions and impulses, uh, their self-respect and this, that and the other, should look to themselves and should come, uh, should come clean with the fact that the question that they're really addressing and articulating is a Kabyle question not a Berber question, not a general democratisation question for the rest of Algeria and that they should go for the autonomy option and this has since been radicalised, the uh, movement the MAK, it ret- retains the same acronym but it's now the movement for the autodetermination de la Kabylie, so uh, this opens the door to a, a fully separatist independence vision and when I was um, travelling throughout Cabilia in August of last year, I uh, crisscrossed the region uh, and I was speaking in eight different localities because I was um, signing a book this was the pretext for why the authorities allowed me to do this, I don't know, but anyway uh, I had the pleasure and the, the privilege of taking part in eight different political meetings <laughs> in different places the, the, the voice that came from the, from the floor, uh, louder than any other voice, was the Mac voice. That this was what ha- was getting a purchase on the reflexes of the younger generation at any rate. Um, and despite the fact that the Mac so far has absolutely no answer to the question, how on earth can we get autonomy, let alone independence, without fighting a war with Algiers? Uh, because there's absolutely no reason to think that the Algerian government... Uh, will uh, agree to uh, autonomy, let alone independence. It has no answer to the question of how an autonomous, let alone independent Kabilia can possibly be an economically viable state. Uh, It has scarcely any resources at all. Kabilia has depended on its share of the uh, manna from hydrocarbons revenues, like most other regions. It really has very little going for it. And the third issue is there's lots and lots of Kabyles in other parts of Algeria. What's to happen to them? The big, Al- enormous Kabyle community in Algiers, big ones in Oran, Annaba, Constantine, Setif, uh, and so on. No answer to what will happen to them. So there's always been an element of implausibility about the MAC agenda. It has gratified the radical impulses of the young rather than offering uh, a project that uh, most people can take that seriously. And my impression was that. While this was the loudest voice, that meant that the earlier voices of the FFS and RCD had faded. Not that um, people were really, really believing in this. Uh, my impression was that the majority of cavalier public opinion was very much in wait-and-see mode, was sceptical. And of course since then we've seen the frustration or defeat of uh, autonomous separatist impulses in Catalonia and in Iraqi Kurdistan. Catalonia has particularly been a reference for the MAC. Uh, And I think this will dampen uh, the enthusiasm of people in Kabydia for it. Which means that in a sense, and this is an important fact, given that Kabydia has been the main regional source of impulses critical of the regime and the status quo from 1962 to this day. In a sense, it's exhausted all its options. Where do those energies go from now on? Into what kind of politics. It's not at all obvious. How do we conceive this? There's a big case for the way Michael has conceived it uh, to, in talking as he does in his book on the Maghreb uh, the way in which the uh, politics of the various Maghreb countries have in fact been converging, starting from really very different starting points. The one party states in Tunisia with a real party, a real party of, of, of running the country whereas the FLN never ran Algeria a monarchy And then the Algerian, Goudia Algerian polity in the middle. Uh, A tendency for uh, them, in a sense, to learn from each other, to resemble each other a bit, to converge. Although, as I recall, Michael, your argument was that this process sort of was in fits and starts. There was sort of movement towards and then movement away again. I think that's right. Um, I was struck by, I mean, I want to just mention briefly the idea that one can have a sort of harder version of this an idea that was suggested in particular to me by a, a senior Tunisian politician last December in Tunis when he said Algeria is actually going Moroccan. And this, is a, this is perhaps a, less, a more unqualified view. The point being that there is a parallel between the decision to dethrone the party of the FLN and, and encourage other parties that was taken in 1989 by the Shadli regime with the strategy of, of the Moroccan monarchy very shortly after independence when Mohammed V Uh, encourages or his monarchy encourages the development of a Berber party that is both Berber and pro-monarchy, very royalist and viscerally anti the Istiklal, the main nationalist party there's a parallel there Uh, to what extent, and Michael knows more about this than I do that the palace can actually uh, be assumed to have connived at Ben Barker's breakaway from the Istiklal is there some grounds for thinking that? Quite possibly. Yes. Okay, well, I mean, in a sense you could see that the Algerian regime is encouraging the Islamists to have their own party when previously they had been within the FNN, is similar. So you can see that the advent of pluralism, of, of this rather unsatisfactory, very limited, if not spurious pluralism in Algeria, gives some justification to the idea that Algeria has, in a sense, been uh, <coughs> switching from the Egyptian model to the Moroccan model. Uh, and one question, I'm, I'm just going to leave that out there as, as one question that merits further discussion in terms of uh, assessing and evaluating uh, where Algeria's got to. I don't want to spend more time on it now. But I, I would argue that there has been an element of, of deliberate moroccanization I would also argue it has been deliberately and consciously promoted by France. Uh, and that there are very, very real limits to how far it can go in the Algerian case. It will never be completed because of the differences between Algeria and Morocco. Let me just throw those theses out there, perhaps, for further discussion. But there's one other point I wanted to add to the mix, and this is um, an old uh, theory of mine, or view of mine, uh, that people have, by and large, not seen the importance within the Algerian political history from the middle of the war to very recently of a kind of discreet, you might even say secretive, political tradition within the Algerian oligarchy. And this is the tradition I call Boussoufism. I call it more than a tradition, I call it a form of politics. I gave a really quite detailed description of this in a lecture in Germany a month ago, which I'm going to publish. Uh, I can just sort of summarize it here. Uh, Boussouf was a major figure. The, the last bullet point there gives you a rundown of his career. In my view, he was uh, he was the person who was very much involved in the in the marginalisation, political defeat, and eventual killing of Aban Ramdan, widely seen as the as the first really brilliant political leader of the FLN in the early years of the war. For this reason, since Aban was a Kabyle and Boussouf was from eastern Algeria, uh, Boussouf is a hate figure in Kabylia and. Even the most politicised cavils will not really address uh, the significance of Boussouf. They just see him as a hate figure, the man who killed Aban Ramdan. Well, revolutions involve revolutionaries killing each other more often than not. I'm disinclined to moralise about such things. My view is that Boussouf developed a very, very interesting and sophisticated vision for Algeria. And because he did that, he didn't simply have lieutenants and clients, he had disciples. He was arguably the only senior figure in the Algerian FLN's leadership... ...actually to create a following on the basis of his ideas. But this was done discreetly because of the uh, constraints within the framework of the historic FLN. Uh, It was not possible to develop such things except discreetly. But what he did in particular, and this is well known, is actually create the Algerian intelligence services... And the Algerian intelligence services, here's Boussouf on on the left with his protégé Boumediene. If uh, Uh, Boumediene becomes such a major figure in Algerian history, it's in part because uh, Boussouf started him off. And when uh, the the war ended, Boussouf, at the ripe old age of 36, accepted that his own public prominent role was over. But he had created the intelligence services, uh, and the intelligence services were run by his disciples, by Boussoufists, uh, from 1962 by this man, uh, Kasti Merba uh, to uh, 1979 and then uh, by uh, Kasti num- uh, deputy to 1981 you have this con- continuity being provided by the Boussavist tradition through the intelligence services who function as the nervous system of the Algerian state uh, and they are very ambitious. Now the point is that uh, what subsequently happens is hosti- hostile reactions to the Boussufists, leading to, if you like, de-Boussufization as well as de boumadianization where the at are, are trying uh, to make comebacks, and they actually make comebacks several times. Qasdi Marba, having been marginalized uh, within the regime from 1980 onwards, makes a comeback following the October riots as prime minister. Suddenly he's in the saddle. He doesn't last there because there is yet another Uh, yet another successful attempt to unseat him. Subsequently, the Bussufus come back uh, in a big way in mobilizing support for the Bouteflika presidency in 1999. The association that they had set up, the association uh, of the former veterans of the uh, ministry that Busuf had run in the provisional government, uh, mobilized the support for Bouteflika, and when we look at the Bouteflika presidency uh, in the early years, Uh, a lot of the men behind the scenes in the presidency are actually veterans of Boussouf's intelligence service or his other apparatuses he created uh, during the war. And my point is that this is uh, uh, an important fact about Algerian history, that the significance of this, if you like, thread within the complicated uh, patchwork quilt of Algerian politics. But it's also important that this has come to an end. Uh, And it seems to me it came to an end as recently as four years ago. Bussophists under Budaflika controlled the interior ministry from 1999 to 2013. That's now finished. Uh, And their purchase on positions of power within the oligarchy, so far as I can see, is now over. And I think that matters. All things come to an end. I'm not going to deplore it, but I think that um, it's, it's an important fact. And it's important for the following reason of all the different forms of politics that uh, have developed in Algeria since 1954, initially within uh, this new and rather awkward framework of the FLN, subsequently uh, emerging out of it at various junctures, Ait Ahmed's FFS, that's a breakaway, a rebellion, uh, other movements, uh, and then of course the the, the various parties or or whatever, authorised from 1989. None of these have been informed by... what was peculiar to Boussafism. Boussafism was the only form of politics that actually took the constitution of a state, the government of that state, and the preservation of that state as its objective. The only one. And therefore I think the exhaustion of Boussafism matters. Uh, And I'm going to end here because I think that there's a case. I I, want to stress I'm not dogmatic. These are impressions and and my sort of trying to conceive uh, my own... uh, conceive, uh, to put into conceptual terms uh, what I think uh, the overall position is, and of course there's plenty of room for argument at this point. But my impression is Algeria is becoming, there isn't simply a vacance de pouvoir, there's more a vacance de politique, that it's becoming a political desert. There has been, uh, I would suggest, a deliberate strategy of depoliticization by the regime of the society uh, which very much recalls what the Mubarak regime was doing in Egypt, and I think that the Algerian regime has been doing the same uh, and I think that this is short-sighted but I think that in any case it's been happening uh, and so I think that uh, Algeria is becoming a political desert uh, when I was there uh, there are all kinds of things that are happening in a kind of comfortable routine uh, one doesn't have the feeling that the place is uh, there's an impending crisis, an impending explosion, not at all uh, but I wonder how long Uh, the Algerian state can actually uh, survive, given the exhaustion, uh, if this analysis, this diagnosis is correct, the exhaustion of virtually all the different forms of politics that have uh, inhabited it since independence. Let me leave it there for debate. Thank you very much.